Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Would anyone else need a handout? I'll leave some of these up front here. Something else I'll mention. I do have extra notebooks if you need a little, or uh, folders if you need a folder to hold the handouts. And then I brought in uh, highlighters if you need a highlighter to highlight and cross-reference, etc. So feel free to come take whatever color. It's great to see everyone this evening. Uh, Thank you for sort of consolidating. I'm reminded that it is also flu season and there's sicknesses, so do it definitely at your discretion. Um, It's more in an effort to try to get us somewhat close to where we can um, talk and discuss a little more. I know last week was less of that, but I definitely want to encourage that this week in our discussion is there any specific prayer requests that need mentioned before our prayer? Okay, let's, let's open in prayer. Our Holy Father, we're so grateful, God, to come before you this evening and come together and to open up your word together, to study it, to um, pause on a busy week and just reflect on your word reflect on your working in the lives of, of men, um, even um, the ancient activities that, that you did uh, in Isaiah's time. And it's, uh, the principles are very relevant to, to us and to our society that's turning from you. And so we pray that we can use these principles to be a light to the nations and help uh, spread the good news of Jesus in our lives. We pray that you'll be with our number who are sick uh, during this this time of the year, coming off the holidays, and we pray for Sister Jean that her uh, surgery, we're thankful that it went well, and please be with her in her recovery, and with um, Jean Clem as well in his surgery. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so on our roadmap, you can see that we're into this section three here of warnings or judgments on the nations. And before we get into this, uh, we're going to review a little bit and then cover a chapter or two that we didn't last week briefly And I've actually allotted for two classes on this long section, 13 through 27. So probably spend the first 15 minutes on chapter 11 and 12, and then have about half the class and the full class next time on this longer section. So can someone remind me last week, uh, who were we dealing with uh, as far as 
um, a king and the decision that he had to make. King Ahaz, yes. Yes, uh, King Ahaz, whether he would trust in the Lord or not, and if he would ally with enemy nations. And what did he choose from what we read? Right, he didn't choose to trust in God. He um, phoned the friend uh, of Assyria up north, and through his decision, brought in this, uh, were they the small kid on the block, or were they the big kid on the block? Assyria. They were... So they were really the most dominant nation in that region at the time. Like you say, Babylon was, was smaller. They hadn't yet grown up. But as far as um, both their their armies and, and just their brutal ways, I guess, they were the most dominant in terms of invading. And through Ahaz's decision, Assyria... Uh, began this invasion into the area, the Levant, so included a lot of the surrounding nations. And that plays into what we're going to go over tonight. Um, We talked also, so among this kind of gloomy situation, Isaiah will jump immediately to future hope and restoration, like we read about in chapter 9, that talked about a child being born who sits on the throne and how Matthew would reference that section to talk about Christ, the light of Jesus, entering Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee. And chapter 10 went back to the Assyria, Assyrian crisis and how Assyria... Um, was Assyria acting on their own, according to that, that chapter? Or was there a larger purpose? Any thoughts there? Right, they were a tool in the hands of the living God. Uh, they were his rod, and he refers to them as the, the boastful acts. Um, and so he, he's saying, they will do my will. Assyria would accomplish what God intended them to accomplish, and then his wrath would be turned on them. They would be punished. And there's a repeated phrase in chapters 9 and 10 that I kind of noted as I was studying through in 9, verse 20. Actually, it starts in 9, verse 12. I'm in the wrong chapter here. All right. 9 verse 12, there's this repeated phrase throughout chapters 9 and 10. um, In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. And that phrase is used again in verse 17. At the end of verse 17, his hand is still stretched out. Verse 21, his hand is still stretched out. And then chapter 10, verse 4, and his hand is still stretched out. And so... Is this a hand of comfort in this case? 
It would seem so. Uh, however, in this situation, this hand being stretched out was an image used to talk about God's judgment, his power, that his, his hand is stretched out in punishment or in judgment. The interesting thing is that it, it doesn't always mean that. Um, Isaiah 59, verse 16 Isaiah 59:16, which you probably know Isaiah 59, um, the first few verses of that. Isaiah 59:16 says, "And he saw there was no one and was amazed that there was no one to intercede. It's talking about the state of Judah. Then his own arm brought forth salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. So it's talking about the arm of the Lord would bring salvation. Um, in Isaiah 53, the Messiah is also called the arm of the Lord. But in this case, in chapters 9 and 10, this hand being stretched out is saying, you know, more punishment is coming, more punishment is coming. It's, it's not over. Um, and so that, that's kind of the image that's, that's given here in this uh, chapter. So we get into chapter 11. And let me mention, the end of chapter 10, the image given is of a forest that's just been mowed down. It's been cut down to the stumps due to this judgment of Assyria that's come through. The, the empty forest there being Judah and Israel. Now, Judah wasn't completely destroyed from Assyria, as you know from history. They were, a lot of the cities were overtaken, but uh, Jerusalem was not. And we'll study about that later with Hezekiah and how that came about. Um, But that's where this picture ends at chapter 11, where it starts. And chapter 11 is a very rich chapter. We could spend a whole class on it, but um, we're just going to touch on a few things. Let's read. So this is a chapter, another chapter on uh, the Messiah and his reign, his kingdom. And these images are going to kind of sound familiar. It's like almost like Isaiah gives us bits and pieces on these different uh, messianic prophecies, uh, different features of the Messiah and of his kingdom. And so let's read verses 1 through 3 of 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So back in chapter 4, if you remember, it talked about on the day the branch of the Lord would be beautiful and glorious. So we have here another image of the branch, uh, a sprout growing up out of this stump that's seemingly dead, that would produce a king, so this Davidic line, the promise made in Second Samuel 7 uh, to David that his, um, his throne would remain, would be everlasting, is continued. God is, is showing here through Isaiah that uh, the kingdom of God uh, in the future is not dead. His promise is not dead. The idea here of the spirit will rest on him. This comes up quite a bit later in Isaiah. Isaiah 42 verse 1. This is when you begin getting into the, the servant sections and the servant songs, which we'll talk about the servant songs. But Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, 
my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. From a messianic perspective, what does this bring to mind? The idea of the spirit of the Lord resting on him. Any thought there from the New Testament? Right, when Jesus was baptized uh, by John in the Jordan and um, the, the Spirit was on him. What else would it bring to mind? Going beyond just the Messiah. Acts chapter 2. So, Peter there quotes Joel 2, which is another prophecy, that in the last days the Spirit would be poured out. Um, and that occurs at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem and upon uh, the Christians. Is there any other comments on these few verses? I'm going to move on to a little further down in this section. So this here talks about the king, and then you get down into verse 6 and 7, which we'll read, and beyond, and that's talking about the nature of the kingdom and his reign. So let's read verse 6 and 7. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. I'm going to go on another uh, verse or so. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the wean child will put his hand on the viper's den. So you read this, and it, it sounds kind of strange to our ears to, to read this, um, especially taken literally. And some do take this literally, uh, people who look to these prophecies as a future time when Christ will physically come and literally reign on the earth. And they have to fit kind of this into that paradigm. And so I read something online about, well, animals will evolve. Evolution will happen such that they'll eat grass. Um, and as we talked about in the first class, this, this literature type is poetry. And in this case, the prophet... Uh, other prophets can help interpret each other. <laughs> prophets can help interpret each other without even trying to sort through um, how this was fulfilled. And so let's flip over to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel would come along later. He would be an exilic prophet during the, the Babylonian exile, um, living in Babylon. And so in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, he's giving this scathing um, rebuke on the leaders of Judah as they weren't the shepherds that they should have been to the flock of sheep. And in verse, in Ezekiel 34, verse 17, he says, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another. 
between the rams and the male goats. So he's referring to Judah, who's in captivity, and he's talking about these animals and these domesticated animals that would have been friendly uh, to, the, to the people who kept them. And he goes on in verse 23, actually sounds a lot like Isaiah 11, uh, verse 23, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Does that bring to mind something from book of John? Kids sing, maybe. <laughs> I am the good shepherd, John 10. It is John 10, right? <laughs> um, so let's read verse 25 and then 28. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And then verse 28, they will no longer be a prey. So 28 is kind of interpreting what he just said in 25. They will no longer be a prey to the nations and the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely. No one will make them afraid. So he's talking about a future restoration time and uses this very same imagery and says, I'm, I'm actually talking about my people will not be a prey to the nations. And we talked a little bit about this in chapter 2 when we talked about beating their swords into plowshares and how the nature of the kingdom of Christ is such that it cannot be invaded with human weapon and be overtaken in the way that his uh, kingdom could um, under Israel. And so... One thing that really kind of seals the deal on this chapter 11 fulfillment is Paul quoting this chapter uh, down in, back in Isaiah 11 now. And then I'll, I'll touch back on the, the animal situation here in, the, in a minute. But if you look at Isaiah 11, verse 10, then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. So Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 15 as he's closing out the book of Romans and he's pleading, pleading with the Christians to, uh, for Jew-Gentile inclusion, that there not be any animosity, um, any um, you know, separation between them. And he quotes this passage and says, as, as Isaiah said, and um, so this has to do with fulfillment through the church and the nature of the church. And um, so these, these, these clean and unclean animals being contrasted here deals with how the uh, Jew and Gentile are going to dwell peacefully with each other, that the nature of the the Gentile in this case, but really anybody who comes into Christ, their nature is going to change. They're not going to be such that um, they're going to, they're going to be peaceful. And so that, I think that's the idea with the, the carnivorous animal, you know, going, becoming a herbivore is they're going to adopt, their spirit is going to be changed. They're going to adopt a nature such that they're peaceful um, it brings to mind Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, uh, in chapter 2, verse 14. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. And this whole section is dealing with this in, in Ephesus and in, in the church, the Jew, Gentile, uh, bringing, bringing them together in one body, which was, was the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians. So Ephesians 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, he being Jesus Christ, who has made the two one and has tor- torn down the dividing wall of hostility, reconciling both to God in one body. So Paul applying this to his day in Romans 15, and we see passages like Ephesians 2, we can, um, we can interpret this as being a spirit, the spiritual nature of the kingdom and how uh, in the kingdom of Christ it, it, there will be peace between its members. Um, the nursing, it says the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and that a nursing child, or excuse me, a, um, a little boy will lead them back, back in Isaiah, Isaiah 6. And that kind of brings to mind what Christ said about unless one turns and becomes like a little child, doesn't it? And so a, an aspect of humility and the type of spirit one would have in the kingdom is not like a tyrant ruler of Assyria. It's like a child. So that's, that's kind of how I would interpret this based on, you know, Paul putting a, a stamp on, on it in his day and, and what we know from, from Ezekiel. Is there any other thoughts on this section? I think we can pretty safely not interpret that literally. One other note on chapter 11. Oh, I'm already 20 minutes in. <laughs> um, just the mention here of a signal for the people. So 11, Isaiah 11, verse 10, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, will stand as a signal for the peoples. Uh, it brings to mind John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 32. And in, in John 12, there had just been Greeks that had come to Jesus, and he says, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to myself. So uh, these, these Greeks had just come to see him at this feast, and he makes this statement, drawing them into the covenant with God. And I, I think that's the image we get here of this signal. Um, and then in verse 12, he says, I will lift up a standard for the nations. A standard would be like a military banner that's lifted up high so that nations could see it and come. So I think that that's the image we get here at the end of chapter 11. Any other comments on this chapter? We're going to touch briefly on 12 and then get into the next section. Chapter 12 is short, and it's a Israel's song of thanksgiving to Jehovah. And the basic idea is that they've learned a valuable lesson, that God is their salvation and their strength. And it pictures this wells of, of water being poured out um, for a people that lived in a land where water was not abundant, that this idea of springs of salvation and having this, this flowing water would be, um, it would be very precious, having, having abundant water. And then this theme will come up later in Isaiah uh, quite a bit, the idea of springs of salvation bursting forth, wetting the land and preparing it for growth. So I'm going to jump on into the next section. And this is a longer section, and it's a difficult one. 
uh, this, I had to read this and scratch my head and read it. And, um, and I, we're, we're not going to have time to touch on this in very much detail at all. And I think that's okay for a class such as this. Um, I was thinking about just this class in general with Isaiah, and I know it does feel fast to go through these. Um, but it made me think of a few weeks ago, I was spraying our um, window, what do you call them? Window shutters? They're uh, cedar, so I took them down off the house and I sprayed them with a light coat. If you try to spray it in one spot and get it real deep, it'll, it'll get thick and clumpy and it won't look good. And, but if you do a light base coat, you can always come back and spray heavier. So I'm kind of thinking about Isaiah this way, that if we can kind of go and touch on these things, you can always go back and dig deeper in each of these sections. But this way, we're at least getting exposed to the text and it'll jog our memory later as you study and as you read these different themes. So this section, as I mentioned, it's a, a longer section, oracles against the nations or burdens against the nations. And I had this list here of these various nations. And just from looking at the list, do you have any thoughts on what, why these nations? Talked about judgments against them. Why aren't there judgments, say, against the ancient Incans or some other part of the world? Right. They were, they were enemies to Israel, or they have impacted Israel in some way. I think that's right. Anything else? How would God judge these nations, um, at least in, in this time frame? Kind of deals with what we talked about with Ahaz. Typically, they would be, he would use an agent, another nation, to judge the nation, uh, such as he did with, with Israel and with Judah. Um, and so... These nations, from this map that hopefully you can see, are those in bold and kind of scattered around that region. But if you look at the words that are in bold, you can see how Assyria touched these nations at some time and in some way. Yeah, so Assyria would be the start of this wave of several nations coming and toppling over the next one. So Babylon would subsume the Assyrian nations and Greece would would subsume those. And yeah, I skipped uh, Persia, didn't I? Per- Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Um, so it kind of gets back, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that actually later, either tonight or tomorrow. Um, and about the, the Daniel chapter 2 vision. 
So you can see, especially the nations right around Egypt, there were different things that would happen where Egypt would kind of get stepped on in the process between, you know, relations with, with uh, sorry, I said Egypt, I meant to say Israel. Uh, Israel was in a, an area where Moab would impact them, Edom, Egypt. And so, again, uh, some of these nations would harm God's people in that way. On your handout, I've put together timelines on the front page and on the back page to try to piece together fulfillments for some of these judgments. Um, in some cases, it's difficult to do that. So definitely that's uh, an educated guess. I don't know that the prophecies or the, the prophecies and the, the judgments in here are ambiguous in some cases. And so it's without good documentation on the nation, it's hard to tell when exactly these were fulfilled and how. Some of them are more clear. But I think what, what we can be very sure about is the general time frame of these. So we know that the book of Isaiah dealt with these four kings of Judah and through their exile, Cyrus is talked about in chapter 45, returning them to the land. So you have about this 200-year period from 740 when Isaiah began to the return from exile, which occurred, um, I think it's about 515, the last wave. And so these judgments generally occurred in that time frame within the scope of the book. Um, You'll find people who look at these prophecies and will try to read current events into these about Syria or about Egypt, because some of these nations still do still exist, but God was dealing with the nations as they existed in Judah's day. Um, and so the, the timelines for these fulfillments and, and how these were fulfilled were, were things that occurred in his day. And again, I've tried to piece together dates for, for those on that handout. Before we dive in, just chapter after chapter, like I said, we won't have a lot of time to do that anyway, but I want us to try to just kind of back up and get a general uh, some takeaways about this section, this judgment section, because it's difficult to read through. If, if you read through it, um, it's just it's hard. It's hard to read through uh, thirteen chapters of this. And um, so, what are some some key takeaways? These are just mine that I uh, thought about as I read through these. So, the general theme seems to be in each of these. Not every single one of them, but most of them have some kind of upshot in there. And it's this idea of not to trust in themselves, but to go to Zion, to go to, to God's mountain. And so he goes, he has Isaiah and, and God, goes through and examines various things about each nation that they depend on and basically shows them this is not going to work. This thing you're trying to depend on is not going to work. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 28, there's an admonition to Philistia not to get excited when one tyrant dies. So this is in 14, verse 28. says, In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root a viper will come out, and its fruit will be a flying serpent. So I think the idea here is, you know, don't get excited when one tyrant dies. There's going to be another that's going to rise up and do similar things. Moab, 
uh, is given the, the picture that their idols are nothing. Their idols couldn't stop this judgment that was going to come upon them. Ethiopia is talked about later, uh, and they had a dreaded army. Um, I believe it's in Kings. I've got a reference later that says they had a million-strong army, but their army uh, wouldn't wouldn't help them. It wouldn't bring. It wouldn't allow them to overcome, and they're basically told to bring homage to Zion. Egypt has wise counselors, but they cannot keep Israel from knocking on the door when when they come to invade. And then Judah, you know, from this list, Judah and Israel are kind of thrown in the mix uh, like the other nations are uh, toward toward the end. And so they're, they're listed here in this, giving the same judgment and the same rebuke as the other nations, that their allies, your allies won't protect you. They were, were, were trying to, to hire allies through Assyria and then later through Egypt. And Philistia was also trying to hire the Egyptians to protect them. So the security they're looking for is not in yourselves. It's not in your nation's power. Uh, it's in God and his kingdom. Go to Zion. I think that's a key message there. Secondly, is about God's judgment. And as we know, there's God's nature is multi, multifaceted. So God is love, and his love is infinite. And yet, uh, Exodus tells us he can't let the guilty go unpunished. And so we have these harsh judgments that are given. And it's, yet it's almost like the judgment can't get out of his mouth soon enough for him to then try to give hope and then try to give comfort. Um, if you'll flip over to Hosea, Hosea chapter 11. I was going to read a, a few verses from this chapter. This is dealing with the northern kingdom. But I just thought the language... It's, it almost gives you, allows you to peer into the heart of God while he's talking about his people. Hosea 11. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. You might recognize that verse as Matthew quotes that in Matthew 2 and says, this is actually Jesus who fulfills this. Well, here, it's out of, out of Egypt I call my son, is Israel. He's called a son. We know how precious our sons are to us. In verse 3, Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. And he goes on to, uh, let's just read uh, verse 7 and 8. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call to them, uh, call them to, to the one on high. No one exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeb Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God, and I am not, and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So it's, 
the Lord here, and I know this is poetic language, we're dealing with poetry, and yet we see the nature of the Lord and wrestling with this judgment and how um, he has this love, but we can't confuse God's love with God's acceptance. And I think that's an important idea. We can't confuse God's love for us and for man as acceptance by God. The last major point I'll mention is the idea of judgment in for the righteous. Um, I came across some writings by Primo Levi, who was a Holocaust survivor in World War II. So he was a Jewish, I believe he was Italian, and he survived Auschwitz concentration camp. So he has a lot of writings, but uh, he described his experience with the, the inhumane acts that he went through that were done in the concentration camps and the human mind and what, what your mind went through. And there was a part that, where he talked about how he didn't want revenge. He didn't want personal revenge on his enemies, but he wanted judgment. He wanted justice. He wanted basically them and the world to wake up to the crimes that they were doing. He wanted their, their crimes to be placed on them so that they would be recognized for the injustice for what it was. He was actually, you know, seeking judgment. Um, so the idea, this is a very biblical idea. I, I think when you read Isaiah 26, this is toward the end of this section. Isaiah 26 Verse 21. We'll talk about this next week, but this section deals really with with Judah and those who God had made a covenant with. And in chapter 26, verse 21, for for behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and no longer cover her slain. So this idea of, you know, the, the bloodshed of the earth is being covered. But when God comes forth, it's going to be bared open. It's going to be made known. This also, may also bring to mind uh, Revelation chapter 6 and those uh, that were underneath the altar when the fifth seal uh, broke. And uh, Revelation 6, verse 10, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God, and they cried out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging your blood on those who live on the earth? Um, One other verse on this, uh, in John chapter 5, verse 24 John 5.24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. He has passed out of death into life. So he says in the next few verses that the, both the righteous and the wicked will come under judgment. So the, it's not the fact that they'll avoid, escape God's judgment, but it's the idea of condemnation. They will not come under condemnation. And you think, too, of Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation. For those in Christ, and so they've um, for the for the innocent, for the for the righteous, judgment is not a thing to be feared. And I think that's something we have to remember for, uh, for us today. That uh, for for the innocent, for those who are ready to meet 
God. Um, we have nothing to fear when judgment comes. Um, it would be a time when, re- when reconciliation will happen, of all things. Any comment at this point? I know we're still talking big picture. <laughs> all right, we're going to touch on this, and then we'll, we'll kind of close out. So I want to talk about apocalyptic language, and many of you who've sat through Bruce's Revelation class and other classes are you're very familiar with this, but this is used in Isaiah in this section quite a bit. I've listed some verses there that you're going to, they're going to sound very familiar to you. So in Isaiah chapter 13, you know, it it says that the earth is destroyed. uh, The sun is darkened. The moon won't give its light. And yet it's about Babylon and how they are judged uh, by the Medo-Persians. Isaiah 19 talks about it says, behold, um, the Lord rides on a swift cloud. And it says the, that the river of Egypt is dried up. And this would deal with a national destruction of Egypt. In uh, chapter 20, talked about uh, that the Assyrians would destroy Egypt. And later on in Isaiah, there's another section like this in 34, Isaiah 34 against Edom, where... Uh, It says all nations are going to be gathered for this, that the stars of heaven will be dissolved, the sky will be rolled up like a a scroll. And it's dealing with Edom's fall. Edom fell by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar in in 583. And so this this language here in Isaiah and in the Old Testament uses this cosmic disturbance language to talk about national judgments on these nations. And what you'll notice here is the New Testament writers pick up on this language and they use this uh, in various passages. Um, as we'll, along the same idea, the day of the Lord, when we hear that phrase, day of the Lord, what, what, what does that bring to mind? Judgment. Maybe a, a final end, end of time Judgment. Um, and I think it's used that way in the New Testament. And, and yet in chapter 13 of Isaiah, um, in fact, we can read that real quick, Isaiah 13. Verse 6 gives us the definition of the day of the Lord, at least for, for uh, Babylon. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Um, Joel one fifteen has a similar description. It's it's God's judgment upon a nation using an an agent, another nation, to carry out that destruction. Um, it ends, it's a national judgment uh, in, in these cases. It's not a universal end of time. And I think that's something we have to again keep in context as we read this, so that we're not jumping knees and then immediately trying to read future far future events into it in our day. Um, and so God had sent his prophets to declare these judgments to Judah and to the nations uh, around him. Um, so I'll kind of stop there because it's wading into to heavy waters there to talk about, uh, about apocalyptic language and, and a class on a, a cheery note. Um, but is, is there any kind of thoughts or questions on, on this subject? Because I probably won't talk a lot more about that next week. 
but we'll, we'll see this as we go along and have to remember this is the type of language that would be used by Isaiah and, it, and later by Daniel during the exilic period as well. All right. Well, great. Well, we'll, we'll pick up next week with uh, chapters really kind of touch on several aspects and really finish through chapter 27 next week. So appreciate your participation. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.